0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, how many people were here for one of the services or were somewhere else at the time? All right, how many of you are here now? All right, how many don't respond to surveys? Three out of ten don't respond to surveys. How many were not here for any of the presentation this weekend? Where were you? All right, for those of you that weren't here, let's do a little bit review. We're we're asking the question, if there is a good God, why is there evil? And we've been going through these three steps in order to answer the question. And the first question, of course, is does evil disprove God? And we pointed out this morning and last night that no, evil does not disprove God, why? Because evil presupposes a standard of good, and good is what we mean by God's nature. So evil doesn't disprove God. It actually shows that God does exist because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. So evil doesn't disprove God. It may prove there's a devil out there, but it doesn't disprove God. The second question is, what's the purpose of evil? And we pointed out that God has allowed evil because he allows free will, And why does he allow free will? Because in order for us to love, we have to have the ability to love, and that requires free will. The problem, of course, is that we have the ability to love, we also have the ability to hate, to do evil. So God has made this a moral universe by giving us, first of all, making us in his image, meaning that we're his ambassadors here on earth and we have mind, emotion, and will. We can make choices. And he's also given us the ability to make these choices for either good or for ill, And so God can use evil for good. And we went through today and last night a number of ways that God uses evil to actually make us more like Jesus. We go through difficulty, and that difficulty can enhance our character. If everything goes our way all the time... We're probably not gonna become more like Jesus. We're probably gonna become more like Satan. We're gonna become more and more selfish. And look, there's only two things you can become after you go through difficulty. You can either become better or you can become bitter. A lot of times people choose bitterness. You've probably heard this, but you know what, what bitterness is? Bitterness is taking poison and hoping the other guy dies. <laughs> bitterness just tears you up. There's no reason to be bitter. You want to become better. My brother-in-law said he has a friend who's mad at God. I say, well, if you're mad at God, you must believe he exists, right? You're being bitter at somebody who doesn't exist? Why are you so mad if this guy doesn't exist that you say he somehow wronged you? Well, we pointed out that there's a lot of things, there's a lot of wrongs and evils that happen that we don't know the answer to. We don't know why they happen, but we know why they don't happen. We're inside of time, God is outside of time. We talked about the ripple effect. We said that an event can occur today and ripple forward to affect so many other events because the ripple effect is, is, is involved in all of our lives. You wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the ripple effect. If your parents didn't meet, you wouldn't be here. Their parents had to meet for you to be here and their parents had to meet on and on. There are ripples that go throughout our society and although we can't see how a particular evil ultimately winds up in good, we know that due to the ripple effect that it can wind up in good even though we can't all figure it out. God can because he's outside of time. He can see how all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose in order to be conformed to the image of his son. So we went through all that, uh, this, uh, these past three services, but we ended here on... Uh, Point three, or question three, what's God's solution to evil? We know that evil doesn't disprove God. We know that God has purposes for evil, but what is God ultimately going to do about evil? He's got a couple of choices, right? He could take away our free will, that would get rid of evil, or he could do something else. That's what we're going to get into. But before we get into this, I need to ask you a question. Here's the question. The question is, does God promise to protect Christians from evil and suffering? So why do we get mad at God when some evil or suffering comes upon us? Has he ever promised that we would never experience evil and suffering if we're Christians? Sometimes people say to me, I don't believe in God. And then I ask them, what kind of God don't you believe in? And then when they describe him to me, I go, I don't believe in that kind of God either. (laughs) Right? I'm an atheist on that kind of God. Yeah, I don't think God is the cosmic candy man that he's obligated to make us feel good all the time. I saw a survey done recently. Do you know that 91% of the people in America think that the purpose of life is to do whatever you desire that makes you happy? There's a lot of things that could make me happy that might make a lot of other people unhappy, right? In any event, no, God does not promise us a pain-free life God is not, we're not God's pets, he's not obligated to make us feel good all the time. In fact, uh, if you notice, the apostles didn't have very good lives, not from an earthly perspective. In fact, let's look at these people, these heroes in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. What is common, what is the common thread running through all these people, these biblical characters? Every single one of them experienced pain and suffering, dramatic pain and suffering, some of them to the point of their own deaths, their own martyrdom. Obviously, Peter and Paul and Jesus himself went through brutal torture for our own benefit. And you know, there's this pernicious theology out there. Now it's called the prosperity gospel. I'm sure you've heard about it. If you're not healthy and wealthy, it's because you don't have enough faith. Now I know that thankfully this isn't taught here, but if it was, it would be easily refuted, how? What's the easiest way of refuting the prosperity gospel nonsense? Yeah, just look at Jesus and the apostles. Did Jesus and the apostles, were they healthy and wealthy? No, they were brutalized. Don't tell me they didn't have enough faith. They had plenty of faith. Yet, they lived lives of pain and suffering. Why should we expect better treatment than the Lord God himself? in his human nature. So no, Jesus does not promise us a pain-free life. In fact, Jesus even says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And Paul says, anyone who lives a faithful life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You're going to be persecuted for believing this and for saying you believe it. And that probably will go beyond more than just being unfriended on Facebook, okay? How many of you are worried that you're going to post something and the people you know are going to be mad at you over it? If that's keeping you from posting something, knock it off. That's actually a badge of honor. You're actually going to be rewarded for being persecuted. So speak the truth in love and let the persecution come. If it comes, it comes, But don't self-censor yourself over important issues. The reason that many people have left Christianity, the reason our country appears to be going in the wrong direction is because enough Christians haven't spoken up in the proper way. We're hiding under our desks while while Rome burns. We need to speak up. In any event, we are not promised a world of pain or free of pain and suffering. This is not heaven Yet, it will be. Do you realize heaven's going to be a physical place? you realize that heaven is going to be a remade heavens and earth, and you're going to have physical bodies that won't decay? That's ultimately heaven. We're not going to be ethereal spirits out there. We're actually going to have our own physical bodies glorified so they won't decay. When you get older, you get dresser disease, right? That's when your chest falls into your drawers, okay? Okay. <laughs> You're not gonna get that in heaven. These are all dad jokes, by the way. So what is God's ultimate solution to evil? God's ultimate solution to evil, pain, and suffering is that God suffered himself. This is the only worldview, ladies and gentlemen, where the God of the universe enters his humanity, or enters humanity itself, and takes pain and suffering upon himself in order to save the creatures that rebelled against him from their own evil and sin. This is why it's the greatest story ever told. And it's true. It's not just a story. It really happened. In other words, his pain can be our gain. He took it upon himself. Why did he take it upon himself? Because we can't save ourselves. Do you know that God's justice... And his love, in fact, all of his attributes are infinite. Let me just give you an idea of what the Bible means by infinite. The scriptures say that God's love to those that fear him exceeds the height of the heavens above the earth. How high are the heavens above the earth? Let's put it this way. Just in our galaxy, if you were to get in in the space shuttle and go from our star, the sun, to another star in our galaxy an average distance away. And you could go at space shuttle speed, five miles per second. That's how fast it would orbit the earth, five miles per second. I mean, think about how fast that is. Five miles per second. You got trouble getting to work in the morning? (laughs) Take the space shuttle. I mean, you'll be there five miles a second. If you could go five miles a second, how long would it take you to get from our star of the sun to another star an average distance away in our galaxy. It would take you 201,450 years. That means if you got in the space shuttle at the time of Christ and started traveling from our star of the sun to another star inside our galaxy an average distance away. You've been going five miles a second for 2,000 years. You would be less than one hundredth of the way there right now. And we're going to explore space. No, we're not. (laughs) We're not going anywhere in space. We can hardly get out of our solar system. You know, it took us nine years to get to Pluto. Nine years. Picture our solar system as a quarter. The sun is in the center of that quarter, a little speck of dust. Pluto's on the outer rim. Okay, it took us nine years to get to Pluto. The next nearest star is two football fields away. We're not going anywhere in space. And how many stars are there in the universe? The number of stars that are in the entire universe are about equivalent to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches, on all the earth, times 100,000. And to go from just one star to another star going five miles a second just inside our galaxy it will take you over 200,000 years. Now you get an idea of what God means by the heavens declare the glory of God. Because when you look at a universe with stars equivalent to sand grains on 100,000 Earths and it's gonna take you over 200,000 years to go between those stars, you get some idea of what God means by infinity. So why did Jesus have to do this? Because Psalm 103 says, God's love to those that fear him exceeds the height of the heavens above the earth. And then it says, he has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. How's he done that? Well, first of all, his attributes are infinite. So his justice is infinite. You know what that means? None of us are gonna make it because if his justice is infinite and you've at all ever been unjust or unjust, and we all have, you're going to get punished. So we don't have any hope making it on our own. But in addition to his justice being infinite, his love is infinite as well. So what does he do? He's got to punish sin, otherwise he's not infinitely just. How does he do it? He punishes it in himself. He takes our punishment on himself. He comes to earth, adds humanity to his deity, and allows the creatures that tortured it that, that, that sinned against him to torture and kill him. so he could remain just and yet also justify sinners. That's what Paul says in Romans 3:26. He is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's solution to evil is he takes it upon himself. The problem is, you don't have to accept it if you don't want to. If you don't want to accept forgiveness and his righteousness, you don't have to. A number of years ago, I was at the University of Michigan doing a debate with an atheist by the name of Eddie Tabash. He was a Beverly Hills attorney. And at one point during the debate, he had the opportunity to ask me a question. And here was the question he asked me. He said, Frank, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She lived a life full of pain and suffering. Toward the end of her life, somebody offered her the gospel, but she rejected it, and then she died. Is she in hell right now? It's a pretty tough question to ask in front of a secular audience. So I said, Eddie, I don't know where your mother is now. I don't know if she had a deathbed conversion or not. But if she didn't accept Christ before she died, then God is too loving to force her into heaven against her will. You see, because the presupposition of the question is that everybody wants to go to heaven. That is not true. Who's in heaven? Jesus is in heaven. There have been people running from Jesus their entire lives. What's he gonna do in the afterlife? Going, hey, where are you going? You're with me now, get over here. No, that wouldn't be loving. You say, what's all this business about hell then? Why does he send them to hell? All right, I used an illustration with the University of Michigan audience. I'll use it with you folks here. I asked the ladies this question. So ladies, here's a question for you. Ladies, ladies. Have you ever had a man pursue you whom you did not want to date? Some of you going, yeah, and he's sitting next to me right now. He will not leave me alone. (laughs) Whenever I ask that question, the ladies always giggle and the men look at their shoes. (laughs) They're like, is she looking at me right now? Well, ladies, suppose this man pursues you. He's pursuing you. He keeps asking you out. He keeps asking you out. And you finally say, look, I like you, but only as a... (laughs) Ladies, why don't you just stick the knife in and turn it? Every man has heard the dreaded friend rejection. Gentlemen, if you ever get the dreaded friend rejection, move on, she's not interested. In fact, ladies, I, or gentlemen, I have some shocking news for you. She doesn't even like you as a friend. <laughs> ladies, am I right? See? See? She's just being nice. I mean, if she really was interested... As a friend, she'd be interested in you romantically, but she's not. Well, ladies, suppose this doesn't deter this man. He keeps asking you out. He keeps asking you out. And he finally says, now, look, I love you so much. I'm going to force you to love me. (laughs) Ladies run screaming from the building. Can he force you to love him? No, love by definition must be freely given. So ladies, if he truly did love you, what would he do? He would leave you alone. That's what God does for us. He sends us cards, letters, and flowers. He sends us creation. He sends us conscience. He sends us Uh, The moral law written on our hearts. He sends us Christ. He sends us Calvary Chapel, Port St. Lucie. He sends us Pastor Mike and Stacy. He sends the entire team, right? And if you're a Muslim in a foreign land and you're seeking God, he may even send you a dream or a vision. These are stories coming out of the Muslim community now because these people want to know the truth. But if he does all that... And you keep saying, no, 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 I don't want you. God will give you up to your own desires. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, that we all know that there must be a creator God out there. We all know there has to be a creator because of the effect known as creation. In fact, if someone ever asks you, how do you know that God exists? Here's what you ought to say. I know God by his effects. I'm reasoning from effect back to cause. If there's a creation, that's an effect. You're reasoning back to a cause, a creator. This is what scientists do, right? They've got an effect. They're trying to figure out the cause. So, if you have a, a, a an effect known as creation, you're reasoning back to a cause, a creator. You have design in the universe and design in life. You're you, that's the effect. You're reasoning back to a cause, a designer. You have a moral law written on your heart, that's an effect. You're reasoning back to a moral lawgiver. You have the ability to reason, that's the effect. You're reasoning back to a mind that's given you the ability to reason. You have this being, this human being that's come to earth and has now become the most influential human being in history Because he resurrected from the dead, that's the effect, so you're reasoning back to a cause that that being who came to earth as a human being and died and rose again claimed to be God, so you're reasoning back to a cause, God. If you have any spiritual experience and you think that spiritual experience has come from God, you're doing the same thing. You're saying, here's the effect, the cause is God. So you know God exists by his effects. You're reasoning from effect to cause. And Paul says in Romans 1, everybody knows this. Everybody knows there are effects that can only be explained by God. But if you take that knowledge and you suppress that knowledge to go your own way, because God's saying go this way and you're saying I want to go this way, and you go far enough, God is going to give you up to your own desires. To where not only... Are you doing evil? You're cheering on other people who are doing evil. And if you look at the end of Romans chapter one, that's exactly what it says. And there's no better description of our culture now than Romans chapter one. Do you remember 30 years ago when President Clinton was the president? When he talked about the subject of abortion, he said abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Do you know what's going on now? Now people are saying, I'm going to shout my abortion. There are states saying, we're going to be an abortion sanctuary. We're going to pay for you to come here. We're going to pay for your abortion. Now we're promoting abortion because people have been been given up to their own desires. God has given them the ability to go their own way. And now not only are they doing evil, they're celebrating evil. And that's what's going to happen in eternity. That if you suppress the truth long enough to go your own way, God's ultimately gonna say, I'm gonna leave you alone because that's what a loving being does. You don't want me. God is gonna give you up to your own desires. You say, what does this have to do with hell? Because hell is ultimately separation from God. You say, what could be so bad about that? Well, look at it this way. Everybody, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, gets some of the common grace of God. What's the common grace of God? Everybody experiences some kind of love, relationship, hope for a future. You know, his rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? But I want you to imagine a place where there is no love, where there are no relationships, where there is no hope, where there is no future. There's just stone, cold, narcissistic self-absorption. That is Washington. (laughs) Actually, that is hell. Synonym for Washington. All right, yes, it's still Washington. (laughs) You're cut off from the ultimate source of goodness by your own choice. You don't want God, so God is going to separate himself from you. Look, if God exists, and he does, and there is an afterlife, and there is, there's only two possible places for you to be in the afterlife. You can either be with God, that's heaven, or you could be separated from God, that's hell. Sorry, you guys on this side are now somehow <laughs> identified with hell. You guys are identified with heaven. <laughs> you didn't know talking about heaven and hell could be so much fun, right? Now it's this side against that side. No. The point here is, is that Think about it, logically, you're either going to be with God or not with God in the afterlife. And C.S. Lewis actually said all this best. In fact, before we get to C.S. Lewis, what this guy was asking me at Michigan was, would a loving God send you to hell? And the answer is, no, you're going to send yourself there because you don't want God. You don't want to be in his presence. You've been running from him your whole life. What's he going to do in the afterlife? Force you into his presence? As C.S. Lewis famously said, he said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. So the question is for you, what are you going to choose? God has solved evil. How has he solved evil? He's not going to take away your free will. He's just going to quarantine evil. That's his solution. He quarantines it at a place called hell, where you can go on willing whatever you want for all eternity. But you're going to be quarantined, separated from the people that want to be with God and want to be with their loved ones who, is, who have also accepted the free gift of salvation. That's God's ultimate solution to evil. He takes it upon himself and he offers the free gift to all of us. That's what he does. So, does evil disprove God? No, it shows God does exist. What's the purpose of evil? Evil. Often, God uses it to bring people to himself. There are many other purposes for it. But ultimately, God's solution to evil is he takes it upon himself and he separates those who have accepted the free gift from those who haven't. So, in the end, there's going to be smoking and non-smoking in eternity. And you guys have to select the pastors on this side. Maybe we've got to flip this around. Okay? <laughs> So going back to where we started, where was God when you were going through difficulty? Well, God did hang on a cross to take your ultimate suffering upon himself, and then he also rose again to prove that what he did was efficacious for you and for me. The only question is, are we going to accept it? That's the question. Now, before we get to your questions on this I do want to spend some time talking about this issue of following your heart because I think we bring a lot of pain and suffering upon ourselves by getting this wrong. And if there's one thing our culture thinks is that we ought to follow our heart and don't let anyone stop you from doing that. So in order to do this, let's start here. Do you realize that everyone you love will die? Everything you build will crumble. Everything you say will be forgotten. Everything you do will come to nothing unless God exists. Because if there's no God... This whole universe is meaningless. There is no good or evil. There is no ultimate sacrifice or ultimate solution or ultimate end other than non-existence. Life is basically meaningless without God. Where am I getting this from? The Bible and philosophy. In fact, Solomon... And Ecclesiastes said this, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What is man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is all about this whole deal is meaningless. Why are we even doing it? What's the point? Why do you get up in the morning? For what? How about your life? Bored? What's life all about? You know, we are living in the most comfortable time in human history. Despite the problems with the economy and inflation and all this, do you realize if you had to pick any time for comfort's sake when you could live in human history, it would be right now. And yet, we're not happy. Are we? Richest country in the world, and yet we have high suicide rates, high divorce rates, high drug use rates. Why? One of the reasons is right here. Why has there been a uh, 6,000% increase in girls claiming to be trans in recent years? Right here. It's a social media contagion. It has nothing to do with biology. It has everything to do with social media. Girls think they're going to be happier. They're going to get out of the funk they're in if they can only get attention. And how do you get attention today? The easiest way to get attention is to claim you're trans. Everyone's going to applaud you. Anybody who says that's going to harm you is going to be shouted down as some kind of transphobe. And now even our government is saying we ought to give hormone blockers and surgery to young girls who aren't even of age. You know what they're doing now? They're actually giving these young girls Lupron. You know what Lupron we used to do with? Lupron is a drug we would give to sex offenders to chemically castrate them. And now we're giving it to young girls who aren't aren't even 18, without the parental consent in some states this is known ladies and gentlemen as child abuse and we're doing it as if we're doing something good because we think if they can only follow their hearts they're gonna solve all their problems I don't know about you ladies and gentlemen but I was a teenager once and you know when you're a teenager Nothing feels exactly right. You're growing up, right? You've got all sorts of things going on in your mind. You don't ever feel completely comfortable. That's part of growing up, and yet we adults are saying, oh, no. If an eight-year-old is a boy, but he says he's a girl, he's got to be a girl. Is this madness? And ladies and gentlemen, how did we go in just four years from believe every woman to what's a woman? What happened? And why, why have we had this rash of uh, shootings? Where's this come from? It's guns. You know, we've always had guns in this country. It's not the guns. Maybe it's because it seems to be always young men who don't have a father in the home. See no meaning to life. And they might as well go out in a blaze of glory. Do you realize some people would rather be hated than ignored? Some people will do anything for attention. There was a famous kidnapping many years ago in our country, the Lindbergh kidnapping. Remember that? Long time ago. Charles Lindbergh's son was kidnapped out of his own house. The boy was later found dead. But do you realize there were over 200 people that confessed to that crime? Who didn't commit it some people will do anything for attention why is this because we don't know the purpose of life we have no meaning we have no hope we're just following our hearts randomly and while fatherlessness as you know is a big problem in our country fathers aren't in the home even when fathers are in the home it's a problem Can't believe I just saw this recently. Look at this. The average school age boy spends only about 30 minutes per week in one on one conversations with his father. The same boy, on average, will spend 44 hours per week watching television, playing video games, and surfing the internet. Gee, I wonder who's going to have more influence over the kid the 30 minutes or the 44 hours? What do you think? All right, so let's do this in the time we have here before we get to your questions. How can we find hope and identity? Because that's what we're looking for. If we get this wrong, we're gonna bring more evil into our lives by our own choices. So let's get this right. We're gonna do three things. First of all, there are three possible paths you can find Hope and identity. Secondly, there are three seductive traps you gotta watch out for on your journey to find hope and identity. And finally, there is only one biblical answer to find it, all right? So let's start right here, the three possible paths. There are three ways you can find hope and identity. The three ways is you can look out to other people, you could look into yourself, or you could look up to God. I'm leaving out looking down to Satan, (laughs) Because I hope none of us make that choice. But generally, you can look out, you can look in, or you can look up. And cultures have said different ways of doing this or have followed different ways. Ancient culture, you looked out, you followed your family. From a vocational perspective, in an ancient culture, if your father was a potter, you were a potter. If your father was a blacksmith, you were a blacksmith. If you were a woman, you took care of the home. That's what you did. You did what your family told you to do. But modern culture isn't like that. Modern culture says you follow your heart. You don't look out to other people. You look in. You see what's inside. And whatever those desires are, you follow them. And you don't let anyone tell you not to follow those desires. Because you got to brook every stream. you got to swim every ocean. you got to climb every mountain. Is that like... The sound of music or something? Or or is that some Disney movie? It's probably both, right? You gotta follow your heart and don't let anyone tell you don't follow your heart. And then, of course, religious culture is you follow the rules. You look up to God and He says, here are the rules. You do it. Actually, Christianity is none of these. You say, it's not follow the rules? No, it's not follow the rules. We'll get to that a little bit later. All right? But I want to concentrate on this one. Modern culture says follow your heart. What do we mean by that? Follow your heart. Well, basically, what we tend to think about today is if we have an idea or a desire on our heart, we tend to think that that desire or heart is is us. That's what we are. So if I have a sexual preference, whatever that sexual preference is, that is my identity. So if I say I'm a man, but I have a desire for other men, then suddenly I think that idea is me. And that's why my identity then becomes part of the LGBTQ community. And that's why if you were to say to someone who's part of that community, we think that behavior that you're engaged in is harmful and sinful, they think you're attacking them. Because they put their identity based on an idea or desire they have on their heart. That's where modern identity comes from. And it's even infecting the church. Unfortunately, many in the church are more interested in meology rather than theology. It's whatever I want, whatever makes me happy, that's what God ought to approve of. That's why you have people even in the church today saying, oh, God is fine with same sex relationships, God approves of them, God is fine with same-sex behavior, or is even fine with premarital sex, or is fine with anything that the Bible says no to, because God just wants us to be happy. See, God is all about me and what I want. It's about my desires. This is my identity. In reality, ladies and gentlemen, our identity is not in our feelings or our desires, In fact, your identity is not whatever you think about. If you were what you thought about, most women would be chocolate and most men would be women. All right? So we know you are not what you think about. But what about this idea of following your heart? Why is that a bad idea? For three reasons. Number one, your heart is sinful and deceitful. Number two, your heart is conflicting. And number three, your heart is changing. Let's go through these very very briefly. First of all, our hearts are deceitful and selfish, or selfish and deceitful. Let me show you why this is true very easily. Let's suppose before you came over here today, you went into the bathroom to get ready and you looked in the bathroom mirror and you saw in the mirror that there was a sign attached to your head and this sign transmitted every single thought you had in big LED letters across your forehead. You couldn't turn it off, you couldn't cover it. No matter where you went, everyone was gonna see every thought you have. Would you be here right now? You wouldn't leave your bathroom, would you? Why? Because your thoughts and my thoughts are evil. We're judgmental and selfish. When we meet someone, we're not thinking pleasant thoughts most of the time. We're thinking stuff like, that's the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. We're thinking, where'd you get that haircut, Walmart? Right, you're thinking, do I even wanna know this person? Is this person gonna do anything for me? That's what you're thinking. By the way, no extra charge for this. This is why you can never remember names. Because when you meet somebody, you go, hey, how you doing? Man, that is ugly. Where did you get that? Where'd you get that scarf, right? The name, right out the window. You're not thinking about it. You're judging. Your hearts are deceitful, and you're trying to figure out ways that you can get something from this relationship. You don't really care about the other person unless your heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit. And even then, it's a struggle, isn't it? In other words, we're selfish. So are you going to follow your selfish heart everywhere? In fact, Jeremiah put it very clearly. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Look, it's easy to be bad. It's hard to be good, isn't it? And we know this, right? Do you ever have to teach a two-year-old to say, mine? No, he already knows that. You have to teach a two-year-old to share because the heart is deceitful and wicked. You need to train up a child in the way he should go. You don't just allow, allow the kid to do whatever he or she wants. It's going to be a disaster. And to show you just how evil our hearts can be, the Babylon Bee, our friends at the Babylon Bee did a little bit of study, and they found this out. Um, study finds 100% of men would eat any fruit given to them by a naked woman. Right, men? Isn't that true? You'd have done no better than Adam. Admit it. No, we're not supposed to follow our hearts. If we follow our hearts, it's going to lead us into disaster because our hearts are deceitful and wicked. They're going to be selfish. They're going to do whatever. We're going to do whatever our hearts wants if we follow our hearts without moral restraint. I know if I followed my heart all the time, I'd have been dead a long time ago. And you would be too. You have to restrain yourself. You know what we're not? We're not supposed to follow our hearts. You know what we're supposed to do? This is, I think, the most important Bible verse in the entire Bible, other than the gospel itself, for today's culture, and it comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 4, 23, which says this. Above all else, guard your heart, because everything you do flows from it. It doesn't say follow your heart. It says guard your heart. Your heart can be taken down paths you don't want to go long-term. You may want to go short-term, but not long-term. Ask any alcoholic if it's been good to follow his heart. Ask any drug-addicted person if it's been good to follow his heart. Ask anybody who's committed adultery and has blown up their family if it was good that he followed his heart. No, you can't follow your heart. You have to guard your heart. If you don't guard your heart, you're going to hurt yourself and others and maybe be damned forever because you haven't accepted the free gift of salvation. So in addition to our hearts being deceitful and wicked, our hearts are also conflicting. Right? I mean, you want to remain thin, but... You want that donut, don't you? And you also want to be in love, too, but then you also want your independence, don't you? I mean, which one are you going to follow? I mean, once you commit yourself to somebody, you lose a lot of freedom, you lose a lot of, you lose a lot of independence. I mean, getting married has totally destroyed my dating life, right? You got to pick one or the other. Your heart is going to be divided, which you going to choose. Then you see that shiny new thing you want, right? But you also wanna have financial security. You don't wanna be in debt. What are you gonna choose? You're gonna choose the shiny new thing? Or are you gonna choose to remain financially secure and not in debt? You know the the fastest way to have less than nothing is to be in debt. That's how you can have less than nothing, is to be in debt. Oh, you want to have kids, but you also want to have a career. You can't be at that meeting at 8 p.m. with your boss and be at your son's baseball game at the same time, can you? You're going to have to choose. Your heart's divided. What are you going to choose? You can't just follow your heart wantonly. It's conflicting. So what are you going to do? you got to make a choice and then you got to restrain yourself. C.S. Lewis said it so well about happiness requiring restraint. Here's what he said. Surrender to all our desires obviously leads to impotence, disease, jealousies, lies, concealment, and everything that is the reverse of health, good humor, and frankness. For any happiness, even in this world, quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. If you don't restrain yourself, you're going to destroy yourself. So you can't just follow your heart. You have gotta guard your heart. So in addition to your heart being deceitful, in addition to your heart being conflicting, your heart also changes. In fact, if you think about this, think about transgenderism for a minute, which is the rage now in our culture. Abigail Schreier wrote a book called uh, irreversible Damage, how the transgender craze is seducing our daughters. And this is where she says there's been a 6,000% increase, increase in girls claiming to be trans. It used to, it used to be one in every 10,000 men felt they had gender dysphoria, that they were in the wrong body. She said in some girls' schools that I've spoken to, it's three out of 10 girls How did we go from 1 in 10,000 men to 3,000 in 10,000 girls? It's completely social media driven. Again, they're going to get approval by saying this. And it makes no sense to affirm somebody in a decision that's probably going to change anyway. Because the studies show that about 80% of people that have gender dysphoria as kids, by the time they hit 18, they've grown out of it. How does it make any sense to give someone hormone blockers or Lupron or God forbid top surgery, which some girls have gotten without parental consent in Oregon, they've had their breasts removed at 13. How does it make any sense to do that to a child when chances are they're going to grow out of it anyway? Why? Because things change. By the way, one other thing about transgenderism. Do you realize that transgenderism presupposes fixed genders? Because if I'm a man and I think I'm a woman, I have to have some idea of what a man is and some idea of what a woman is to even know the difference. I also have some idea of what a man is and some idea of what a woman is to try and make the so-called transition. If there was no gender binary, there'd be no way to know this. And this is why, by the way, there's a bit of a civil war in the LGBTQ community, uh, because if the T's have their way that there are no fixed genders, then the L, the G, and the B don't exist. Because how can you be lesbian, bisexual, or gay if there are no genders? You can't. And By the way, the feminists aren't fans of this either. Why? Because if there are no genders, there are no women. And if there are no women, there are no women's rights. What's feminism? You see the problem? There's not a lot of logic behind it. It's all emotion. It's all heart-driven. And if we don't guard our hearts rather than follow our hearts, we're going to be complicit in destroying somebody's life. Our hearts change. Just to give you an illustration of this, Tim Keller, pastor from New York, who's now retired. By the way, pray for Tim Keller. He has pancreatic cancer. In any event, Tim Keller said this. Do you ever notice that as you grow, your priorities and your heart changes? I mean, when you're 10 years old and you grow up and you become 15, when you're 15, you probably look back at your 10-year-old self and go, you know, I was an idiot when I was 10. (laughs) Right? And then when you hit 20, you look back at your 15-year-old self and you go, I was an idiot when I was 15. And then when you hit 30, you look back at your 20-year-old self and you go, I was an idiot when I was 20. Do you know what this means? It doesn't matter what age you are now, according to Keller, you're an idiot. All right? Now, Now, thankfully, this slows up, right? When you get old, I'm 60 now. So hopefully I had my priorities straight when I was 50 and I'm fairly sure I did. So I didn't look back at my 50, I don't look back at my 50 year old self now and say I was an idiot when I was 50. But when you're younger things change so quickly that you do that. Because your priorities and your heart changes. So why would you say follow your heart at all costs when you're 15 when chances are it's going to change anyway. So you can't Follow your heart. You have to guard your heart. Now, we have a great school here at Calvary Chapel, Port St. Lucie. And this does not apply to this school, but here's what Thomas Sowell, the 92-year-old intellectual, said about what's going on in education in our country right now. He said, ours may become the first civilization destroyed not by the power of our enemies, but by the power or by the ignorance of our teachers and the dangerous nonsense they are teaching our children. In an age of artificial intelligence, they are creating artificial stupidity. And it's all wrapped up in the idea that you ought to follow your heart. You don't follow your heart, you guard your heart. In fact, let's say this together. Above all else, Guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. All right, number two. What are the three seductive traps that can get in our way when we're trying to discover our hope and identity? My friend Jay Warner Wallace, you may have heard about him. He's a cold case homicide detective uh, who is a Christian, and he's been on Dateline more than any other cold case homicide detective because he solves murders decades old And Jim has used his cold case skills to investigate the greatest homicide of all time, the homicide of Jesus. If you get the book Cold Case Christianity, you can see him do this. And what Jim says is whenever he finds a dead body that he knows has been murdered, he says there's only three possible reasons why that guy's dead. He doesn't have to look for a thousand motives or a thousand reasons. He says there's just... One of these three or a combination of these three. There was either a sex issue, a money issue, or a power issue. That guy's dead because there was a sex issue, a money issue, or a power issue. Sex, money, or power. Those are the three things that can motivate people to murder. In fact, those are the same three things that can motivate any of us to sin. Why? Because sex, money, and power are good things. The problem is is they are so good we'll often take shortcuts to get them And so Jim is saying that we need to watch out for these things. And so does the apostle John, who writes in 1 John, the three traps in the world. Here's what he says. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Those are the three things right there is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the, the one who does the will of God lives forever. The lust of the flesh, sex, the lust of the eyes, money, the boastful pride of life, power, recognition, pride. Why do the Proverbs talk so much about sex, money, and power? For this reason. These are the, things that, these are the three things that can derail you If you don't guard your heart, these are the three things that can cause you trouble, that can get you off track. In fact, this is what got Solomon off track. Remember the guy who was saying life is meaningless? What did Solomon try and do? In Ecclesiastes two, he tells us, I tried wine, I tried works, I tried wealth, I tried women, I tried wisdom. Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He said, I tried it all, and it was still meaningless. What's the point? Just gonna die. I'm gonna leave my inheritance to someone else. Well, that person's just gonna die. What's the point? By the way, although follow your heart is all through the culture, when the culture makes entertainment, it realizes that follow your heart doesn't resonate with people ultimately. This is the book I told you about earlier. Hollywood heroes, we go through all these characters. They all point to the ultimate hero, Jesus. Let me give you an illustration of this with Iron Man. How many have seen any of the Iron Man movies or any of the Avenger movies, okay? Iron Man is my favorite character out of all these characters, why? Because Iron Man's like us. Tony Stark is a fallen human being and he starts out as an amoral arms dealer who's got all the money he wants. I mean, he's got money, he's got a great girlfriend, he's got power, he's got sex, money, and power. And he's living life on his terms, but he's still miserable. Why? He has no identity, he has no purpose. He has everything to live with and nothing to live for. In fact, you ought to ask your kids why is Tony Stark unhappy? He's got everything we think we need to be happy sex, money, and power. Why is he not happy? He's got no purpose. Then what happens? One of the weapons his company sells to a terrorist group detonates near him, and it puts shrapnel in his chest. And he has to have a device installed right in the center of his chest to guard his heart from encroaching shrapnel. If that device fails, he dies. And then what happens? Tony Stark begins to get a purpose in life. He begins to realize that life isn't all about him. And he goes on this long arc of character development to the point where in the final movie, Endgame, spoiler alert, (laughs) Tony Stark, Iron Man, literally sacrifices himself to defeat the Satan figure, Thanos. And he does this, not following his heart, but denying what's on his heart in order to save the world from evil. Now, that resonates with people. People look at that, and they go, that's inspiring. But imagine if the movie had ended this way, Endgame. Tony Stark and his Avenger buddies are about to take on Thanos, and Tony says, Guys, I'm just not feeling it today. I don't want to take on Thanos. In fact, I got to get back to following my heart and taking care of just me. I'm out. And then the movie ended. Would anybody go, Woo! Inspiring. Wow, look, he followed his heart. He turned tail and ran to take care of himself. Gee, what a great example. No, we go, That's awful. That's terrible. Exactly. Now, Tony Stark turns out to be a Christ figure. He sacrifices himself to save the world. That's what Jesus does. By the way, Captain America does the same thing. Harry Potter does the same thing. Luke Skywalker does the same thing. Frodo does the same thing. Batman, Superman, they all do the same thing, why? Because Hollywood knows if you wanna get to the heart of the the American audience, you've gotta show them true love and true love comes by sacrifice. Not by following whatever you wanna do. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than if he lay down his life for his friends. That's what all these heroes do. And the ultimate hero is, of course, Jesus. So let's say it again. Above all else, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. All right, so we gotta look out for those three seductive traps, sex, money, and power. Now, what's the one biblical answer to all this? How do you find true identity? How do you find true hope? You've got to look up. And in order to do this, you might ask, well, why look up? What does God know? All right, gentlemen, maybe you can help me with this question. How do you know that your quarterback throwing a touchdown is better than your quarterback throwing a pick six? That's when your quarterback throws an interception and the other team takes it back for a touchdown for themselves. How do you know the touchdown is better than the pick six? How do you know? It's not just the rules. The what? What team are you on? No, that's not going to tell you. Huh? How you feel? Just how you feel about it? Purpose, right? Clark's got it. You got to know the purpose of the game. If there's no purpose to the game, you can't say a touchdown gets you closer to the purpose and the pick six takes you further away. You need to know the purpose in order to discover that. Well, the same thing is true in life. You can't say there's a right way to live or a wrong way to live unless you know what the purpose of life is. And we talked about it earlier. The purpose of life is to know God and to make him known. Now, notice that in football, the purpose and the rules of the game come from outside the game. So when the Buccaneers across the state here go and uh, suit up to play, has training camp started yet? I don't know. It's close. When when they show up at the football field, the the rules are already set, right? Uh, They don't make up the rules. The field's set. The rules come, and the, the goal comes, the purpose comes from outside the game. The commissioner and the owners get together, and they decide the rules. Now, the rules of football are arbitrary. They could be different, but the rules of life are not arbitrary. They do come from outside the game. They come from outside this world. But they come from the God who created the world and created us. And he says, here's the right way to live and here is the wrong way to live. So if you want to find the right purpose, you've got to look up. You don't look in. You don't look out. You look to God. And we already pointed this out. As Jesus said, the purpose of life is now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The purpose of life is to know God and adding the great commission into this, making him known. So, remember we talked about this earlier, that people tend to think that whatever is on their heart is them and that generally is not the right way of looking at life, that you don't find your purpose by just the desires of your heart there's only one exception to that in Christianity when you truly accept Jesus God looks at you and doesn't see you anymore he sees Jesus when you accept the free gift of what Christ has done you've accepted a brand new identity and that identity has eternal hope you know, you can lose everything in life. You can lose your spouse, you can lose your children, you can lose your money, you can lose your job, you can lose your health, you can lose your life ultimately. The only thing you can't lose is Jesus. Everything else you can lose. And if you put your identity in anything that isn't eternal, it's temporary, which means you can lose it In fact, a eyewitness of all of this, John, who not only wrote 1 John, we already saw there, but he wrote the Gospel of John, really the biography of John. In the very first chapter of his biography of Jesus, he tells us that we ought not try and achieve our identity, but we need to receive our identity you know Christianity is the only world view where you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity? Here's what he says. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. You become a child of God, you're adopted into the family with all the rights of an heir by simply accepting the free gift that he has done. But if you try and achieve your identity... You're setting yourself up for disappointment, why? Well, if you have to achieve it, first of all, that puts all the pressure on you. Secondly, there's always someone that can do it better. And if you put your identity, say, in your sexual preference, which is what our culture's really into, what happens when your sexual preference changes? Or what happens when you are no longer sexually preferred? Do you no longer have an identity? If you put your identity in your job, what happens when you retire or are fired? Do you no longer have an identity? If you put your identity in another person, what happens when that other person, God forbid, leaves you or dies? Do you no longer have an identity? If you put your identity in anything other than the eternal, you're setting yourself up for bitter disappointment. Your identity is not in what you do or what you can accomplish. Your identity is in your creator, your savior. Your hope and identity comes not from what, or comes from what Christ did for you, not what you do for him. It's just given. It's a free gift. Why wouldn't you take it? There's nothing you can do to achieve it. It's a gift. That's how you find true identity and true hope. So... What are the three possible paths? Look in, look out, or look up. And when we say look up, why is f- not following the rules the Christian way? Remember we said that earlier? Are there rules in the Christian life? Yeah, of course there are. But, are, but do the rules give you your identity? No. no. The rules are, are a help after you achieve your identity or receive your identity. It's achieved for you. After you receive it, it's here's how you can help Know God and make Him known. It doesn't give you your identity. It would be like going to a football game. Well, let me ask you this. Is the purpose of a football game to obey the rules? No. Suppose you're on a football team and you come to the coach after you just lost 42 to nothing and you go, hey coach, I obeyed all the rules. <laughs> What's the coach gonna say? Whoop-de-doo! The purpose is not to obey all the rules. Obeying the rules can help you achieve the purpose, which is to win the game. But obeying the rules is not the purpose of the game. The same thing is true in Christianity. The purpose of life is to know God and to make Him known. Obeying the rules may help you do that, but that's not the purpose, do you see? The three seductive traps are traps, sex, money, and power, and the one biblical answer is to look up. Look up and find the free gift. We started with Ecclesiastes. Let's end with Ecclesiastes. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. What's gonna make you satisfied and me satisfied is not something temporal, only God himself. That's where you find hope. That's where you find identity. If you get this wrong, ladies and gentlemen, you're gonna bring a lot of pain and suffering, unnecessary pain and suffering into your life. Guard your heart. Don't follow your heart.